bear with me, but today we're going to start the show with two quotes. Oh, relax, they're short. Here's the first one. When we were young, we had no fear of love, nor sex, nor warnings. Everyone was hanging out, and everyone was sordid. When we were young, nobody knew who you were or what you'd do. Nobody had a past that catches up on you. I'll tell you who wrote that on the other side of the show, but let's go to Yeats for our second quote. Life, the great poet once said, is a long preparation for something that never happens. Well, today's show is about something that happened and something that didn't happen. In other words, the things that were and the things that could have been. I'm Alex Green. We're starting on a wistful note, aren't we? And this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. When we were young, nobody died. And nobody got older. The toughest kid in the street could always be bought over. The first time that you loved, get all your life to live. At least that's what you said. The first time you got drunk, you drank Perno and dry cider. Smashed a window in as the police came around the corner. You didn't have no time to run. And your dad stood up for you as the judge said you're a fool. And baby sex and flagging shit and women getting stoned. Robbing cars, bars and pubs, rubber Johnny's pones. Starscreen Hutch get good TV. And Starscreen look like me. That is the music of Whipping Boy, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Paul Page. Let me tell you a little bit about Whipping Boy and Paul Page. I think a lot about something Billy Joel said when somebody asked him why he didn't write pop songs anymore. His response was, I wrote a hundred songs. I gave you enough. He's got a point. I mean, how much do you want from someone? Well, when you're music fans like we are, you want, well, you want all of it. And you want it to never end. It almost feels personal when it does. But trust me, it's not. Now, the Stone Roses, or, I don't know, the Laws... They could never make the Billy Joel assertion because they gave us very little. It was great, sure, but it was brief. Or could they make the Billy Joel assertion? Could they say, look, here's 12 songs or here's two albums. Do with it what you will. But that's all you're going to get. Quantity? Well, it's a nice thing. I mean, I would have loved to have had 10 Stone Roses albums, but that's just not the way it was going to go. Which brings me to Whipping Boy. The Dublin Outfit have just three albums to their name, Summerine, Heartworm, and their posthumous self-titled effort. Look, all three are brilliant, but Heartworm is considered by many to be a front-to-back classic, a staggering collection of anger, passion, poetry, and grace. Sonically, Heartworm sounds like a mix between a house and the fall. It grinds away with staggering melodic beauty and streetwise lyrical grit. And it shoots light out from every note that's played. It is a straight-up 
Stone Cold Stunner. Trust me. When the band formed in 1988, they were known as Lolita and the Whipping Boy. But when their lineup solidified, and it was Fergal McKee on vocals, Paul Page on guitar, Miles McDonald on bass, and Colm Hassett on drums, they shortened their name to just Whipping Boy. And they were a dark and powerful band, capable of staggering beauty and edgy elegies that were redolent with wisdom and philosophy. Their influence can still be heard in bands like The Fontaines DC and Shame. And if you put on any of their three albums, the urgency, the intensity, and the muscle sound as fresh as ever. So, getting back to what was. We have three albums from Whipping Boy that are indispensable. If they'd stuck around, who knows? They might have ruled the world. They certainly had all the tools at their disposal. But the band were done in 1998, and that was that. Did they give us enough? Well, you and I both know it can never be enough. We're fans. We're greedy that way. Paul Page is a great guy, and this is an honest, unflinching chat about what was, what could have been, and all that tricky stuff in between. Here's me and Paul Page of Whipping Boy having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. actually never got to play in the states at all we got over to new york for um a week to do promo with the record company and we did loads of interviews and all the plans where we'd come back and play some shows but then we did that luria tour in europe and pulled out of a stabbing westward tour in america to do that and the, the american company just went cold on us after that really it was yeah yeah it was a bad it was a great move like the tour with Lou Reed was amazing. It was one of the best experiences of the band, but as a, a career move, it was probably a bad idea because the American company had us lined up to go out and do a 40 gig tour with Stabbing Westward all over the States. And, uh, you know, our manager advised us the Lou Reed tour was a really good opportunity. And we obviously big fans of Lou Reed. We wanted to do it. So, but it, it did it did mean the American company just lost interest in us completely after that. They just saw that was a bad sign. <laughs> I didn't know that so a band had the option of saying, Well, I think we're not gonna do that. Yeah, well I suppose your manager in terms of our manager, we had uh, a manager, Gail Colson. She was like um she managed the pretenders, Peter Gabriel. She was seen as a fairly a heavy hitter in the music industry and we only really got her in um around the time of Heartborn. And I suppose, you know, I think there would have been a bit of respect for Gail in the business and her advice was do the Lou Reed tour in Europe. It's too big an opportunity. And we wanted to do it because we all grew up being huge fans of the Velvet Underground. But as I say, sometimes you probably, we probably should have did the, the American tour. It would have been probably our first kind of foray into the States and would have kept the American com- record American record company on side, but look, in hindsight, you look back on these things and think it probably was a bad idea. But you know, I don't know, man. I mean, I think we'd be sitting here now, and you'd be saying, "God, we should have done that Lou Reed tour." <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. And the the Lou Reed tour was an incredible experience, like just incredible. Like we were out five weeks all over Europe, and I remember the first night standing side stage. And he opened with Sweet Jane, just those those really familiar chords. 
and I just remember saying to myself, I get to do this for the next five weeks, stand this close and hear someone that I grew up listening to, like who really inspired me to want to be a musician. I get to, I get to do this every night for five weeks. So it was an incredible experience. I wouldn't, I, I don't regret it in that res- respect, but I know potentially for the States, it was a bad idea for us to not do the, the Stabbing Westward tour at the time. I mean, I gotta say, it feels like a really weird pairing though. Like you, you and Stabbing Westward, that, didn't, that doesn't make sense in my head at all. Well, they were a Sony band and I suppose they had already built up a, some kind of a following in, in, in the States because they're based there. We were kind of a newer band. So I think I can see why Sony thought it was a good idea, put the two bands on the same bill. There would be some crossover. To be honest, there was the Lou Reed audience probably wasn't their audience either. You know, they were a much older audience at the time. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we just wanted to do it. It was just an amazing thing to get to play with someone who was an idol like that. Yeah, and Whipping Boy were pretty lyrically driven. Um, yeah. Whereas you know, and, and no disrespect to Stabbing West, they're a Chicago band, they're an industrial band, um, but they're not. They're not really. They're more like sonically dazzling they're 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 not to my ear they're not like a lyrically inventive outfit the way that so i think lyrically whipping boy had a lot in common with with lou reed i would think yeah uh, yeah i'd agree with you there and i think there was a lot of lou's in the way he wrote about um growing up in new york a lot of that yeah was still true to the way we I suppose I'm Fergal wrote about his experiences growing up in ireland so um and, and that honesty in the lyrics where you just lay it bare and and that was something that we got to do with heartworm for a major for a major record label album the honesty to be even to be allowed to do that was was something we were surprised by nobody ever tried to censor what we wrote or even how we sounded which amazed us like there was no tampering with heartworm we got to make the album we wanted to make which was really really good for us and i think that's one of the reasons why it's stood the test of time there's so many bands i've liked who when they signed a major deal and you know they go into the studio for the first time and their music is so watered down and so polished like it's it just becomes unrecognizable and the thing that the record company sold them for is sorry the the thing that the record company signed them for is actually filtered out their music completely (laughs) so you know we they didn't do that with us, which, you know, I think they trusted based on the demos that they heard that we had something that, you know, that really I spoke, spoke, spoke to them. And they, they felt, they felt, you know, that it was all there. It was all there. As it turns out, I think our, our music was probably came out at the wrong time. It came out at the time Britpop broke. And yeah. we, we just, we just weren't that, you know, we just were not in that in that kind of niche at all. Were you listening to uh, a lot of Irish bands growing up? Like, were you were you influenced by like bands like the Undertones or the early stuff to like that? Honest, no, to be honest, probably not. We would have been more into, I suppose, um, English post-punk music, mm. like Echo and the Bunnymen, um, the Chameleons, uh, you know, The Fall, uh, Nick Cave, obviously Australian. Um, and then I suppose at the right at the beginning of the band, we became really interested in some of the American noise core bands like Sonic Youth, Big Black, Swans, those kind of bands. 
So we were quite different in that respect in Ireland. Like there was no bands doing that kind of, or, or, or bringing those kind of influences to bear uh, on the Irish music scene. A lot of bands at that time were either into R.E.M. Yeah. Or, or the Waterboys, like the kind of, that, that whole Irish scene at the time was really in love with R.E.M. and the Boards and all those kind of bands. You two, I suppose you two were, had, had broken or had started to really make strides and a lot of Irish bands saw U2 as, you know, an inspiration in that they could see here's an Irish band who've made it on, you know, a bigger stage. Um, I, I actually liked a lot of U2's early music. I thought a lot of it was really, really good. Um, you know, um, I wouldn't see they had much influence on what we did, though. Um, they did. I think they did influence a lot of the, the Irish music scene at the time. And there was a lot of bands who were influenced by that kind of stadium rock sound. And that wasn't what we were about at the beginning at all, you know. We were a really noisy, nasty band in the beginning. And those early demos were just really influenced by Sonic Youth, Big Black, those kind of bands. Yeah, I never would. Because you and I are the same age. And so you're mentioning bands like The Fall and Echo and the Bunnymen and the Chameleons. And those are bands that I grew up loving. And... I never would have made the connection between songs about fucking <laughs> and whipping boy. I, that, yeah. that, you know, I never would have heard because for me, that big black album is pretty a good, you know, sort of a seminal American um, post-punk record. That's the American post-punk stuff, that grinding noisy thing. Um, but by the time my ears got to whipping boy, that grinding stuff that you're talking about, like I didn't, I didn't hear that stuff. Um, yeah. So we had an EP, a, a cassette-only EP, right at the big beginning called Sweet Mango Thing. And that's where that stuff, we got that all out of our system. It was all of that kind of stuff. We then got signed to Cherie Records in the UK. And I suppose our first two releases with them was an element of shoegaze. There was a bit of that kind of noise still in there on those two EPs. The, you know, uh, My Bloody Valentine. Jesus and Mary chain, a lot of that kind of white noise. We, we had had that going on in the first two EPs. But it was only after the debut album, Submarine, that I really think we began to free ourselves of all those kind of generic influences. And I think Heartworm was the first thing that we really did that sounded like it wasn't particularly influenced by anything that was happening at the time. Like, I mean, there's elements of everything that we'd listen to in there, but it wasn't slavishly following the musical trends and it certainly wasn't you know you couldn't listen to it and say that band are in love with sonic youth the way you could with submarine our debut album you just couldn't so and um, yeah i think i think heartworm was our first statement of first kind of finding our feet as a band knowing what we wanted to do ourselves yeah it's weird when you think about the fall going from like hip priest to hit the north i mean that just sounds like that's as poppy as i guess they got um, mm. The chameleons. By the time we get to, I don't know, maybe tears or on the strange times record, they're they're veering towards a more pop element. And I just wonder if, as as bands evolve, um, I'm not saying everyone evolves to pop, but you start to sort of shed that rawness and something else takes over. I think that's kind of exciting to trace. Yeah, I I think a lot of it is down. If, if I'm being honest, when we started playing music, we had a very rudimentary knowledge of how to even play like it was that punk thing that and that's the thing that i think 
I loved about punk music, the idea that, you know, anyone can do it, that you, you can pick up a guitar and make a noise and do something that sounds thrilling. And that's carries you through so far. But as you, as, as you are kind of, the longer you're at it, the better you get as musicians. And I think that's what really what you, you see with some bands that they start, it, it's not even sometimes a conscious thing. It's just, they do get better and they get more focused and it's not enough just to get out there and, you know, make a noise or, you know, just bash out a tree car trash. It, it, you just naturally become a better, better unit as a band. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is when we were young reminds me a little bit of stuff on the first, maybe, or second um, a house record. Um, yeah. Right, there's a little bit of similarity there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I mean, a house were really good band and would have been around similar around the same time maybe a little bit before us they came out and um, so i remember going to see a house playing in the underground this tiny venue in dublin um before whipping boy started and um, you know go, going to gigs at the weekend in dublin dublin had so many venues and such an explosion of bands around the time when i i started going to gigs like you literally every weekend you could go out and see a different band and it was just incredible and I think that's something we've lost. Um, certainly there's a lot less venues in Dublin now, but there doesn't seem to be the same. Now, I know people will argue this, and I've said this before, and people were indignant. They were like, how could you? You just don't, you're just getting old. You don't know what's out there. But I just get the sense there's not the same, um, music doesn't hold the same place in people's lives, young people's lives now, as it did when I was growing up and before, you know, I started listening to music, like music had a much more central, central um, role for, for, you know, teenagers when I was growing up than it does now. So many distractions for kids, other distractions for kids now. I'm not saying there's not like, you know, kids or teenagers now don't love music. I just don't feel that kind of obsessive compulsion that we would have had with music back then. And maybe I am getting old. No, no. I mean, well, look, we're definitely getting old, but we're hanging in there. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I do think that what you're saying is true. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that is. Um, I feel like social media has probably demystified the allure of, you know, like, like for me, I saw the Meat Puppets. Remember that band? Yeah, yeah. Right. I saw those guys in Berkeley when I was 17 with sound, I think they were playing with Soundgarden. And the drummer of the Meat Puppets he, I went to go, I was supposed to interview them and I went out and he was urinating by their RV. And I remember looking at him going, that guy's a God, right? Because, <laughs> because in my brain, even, you know, even this is like ridiculous moment, but I thought there he is. We didn't have, yeah. there was no access to these people other than um, just seeing them on record sleeves and mythologizing them. So even when you see him, you know, uh, urinating by the side of the road, you're thinking, oh my God, there that guy is. <laughs> Um, yeah, you're, you're right. You know? Yeah, right. And like very often the first experience we would have of a band when I was growing up was you'd read about them in the music press and you'd have to wait until the record came out and you'd have to go out and buy the record, come home and put it on. Now it's like you click a button and you're into that song or you're shuffling through different tracks. It's, it's a different experience. I'm not saying it's any worse or any, you know, but it's, it's just a different experience to what we had when we were growing up. Yeah, I, I just think the distance between musician and fan is so close now that, that that's part of the reason why that's been lost, I think. 
possibly, yeah. I mean, even even Dr. Dre uh, had said that he thinks that there's a demystification process through social media with with ours because frankly, like if Freddie Mercury was still alive and Queen was still an ongoing thing and Freddie Mercury was posting about eating a sandwich, that would sort of demystify the rock <laughs> god. Exactly. Yeah. You, yeah, you knew so little, you, you knew so little about the bands. It was, you know, what you read in the music press. And when they came along and played a show in your town, it was a big thing to go to that show. You know, they were, they were your idols. So uh, yeah, I think you're, on, you're, you're right there. It's part of it. Um, how is your relationship these days with your instrument? Um, that might sound like a peculiar question, but like, how are you guys getting along these days? <laughs> um, I don't really play anymore. I am, um, I suppose, after after the band split up, we put, I put 13 years where we, like it was everything. It was my whole life. Um, and when the band split, it, it really crushed me for a, a long time. It, it had... At the time, I was thought I'd be relieved when it broke because things were had gone downhill with the band in terms of our relationships. And there's that element of you just you can't wait to get out of it because it's so toxic. But then when it ended, I really was uh, I was lost for about 14, 16, you know, maybe two years. I, I think back to that time and I was really I didn't know what I was doing. And it, partly because the whole support network disappears overnight, like so the people that you are like reliant on in terms of everything, they were everything you, they were, you were around them every day. And then all the, the kind of the other people that were in the whole, you know, the kind of satellites, if, if you like, you know, the sound guys, the people who went with you to gigs overnight, they just disappeared. So all those friendships and well, you thought there were friendships there, they're just gone. And so I, I really struggled and I didn't want to look at the guitar for, you know, for a long time afterwards. And I did try to get back into it, but Whippin' Boy were the only band for me. I knew it when we split. I'd never play with another band. So I just, I just knew it. I was, I kind of learned to play guitar a certain way within the confines of Whippin' Boy. We, you know, my style of playing, I couldn't have just, I couldn't have just uh, fitted in with another band. Like everything I did was, for the whip my sound it was just it was everything so yeah i don't really play music that much now i listen to it a lot i kind of am very active on twitter in terms of, and i i had a blog site for a while where you know I, tr I was reviewing music but even that after a while i began to feel you know what it's talking about music it's just it's not the same <laughs> mm. writing about music it's not the same once you've played it so i don't really do that much in terms of music anymore when I remember when I was in high school, a girl broke my heart and I was like, I will never love again. But I knew in the back of my brain I would, right? And a yeah, couple yeah. of weeks later, I did. But but the thing is, when you, did you consciously say, I'm I'm done with this? Or, or did you, was it something that sort of just gradually, you realized you just didn't have the, didn't have the, um, the heart to pick it up with another band? Yeah, I think it was a, gra a gradual, initially, I just didn't want to do anything. But like you like you said, in the back of my mind, I was thinking I'll probably do something with Miles, the bass player, because we we were really close and grew up together. And um, but it just didn't happen. I I just lost the love of it. The, it was knocked out of me by the the whole experience of Whitten Boy, particularly towards the end where things got really really bad. And um, but 
we, we did reform. Um, we reformed and did a series of shows 10 years after the band split. Um, and it was good. It was good if only because we got to bury some of the, uh, you know, some of the animosities that were there to be able to get back together and just be able to be civil with each other. And we played some shows and they were good, but I never felt, you never get back what you had when you were in your kind of pomp and when you were, you know, that youthful zeal that you had when you, the band was everything to you. It's not the same when you reform to play some shows. It just isn't. It's not there. And we only got three albums out of you guys, really, technically, right? Three albums, two EPs. Um, yeah, three albums, really. Um, that was it. Um, we weren't the most prolific. There was a lot of things, though, in between. Like, we, we had three albums, but they were on three different labels. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> It's, it's hard enough to get signed to one label. We get, managed to get signed to three, and the EPs were on another label. So, yeah. you know, there was a lot of time between those records where you're looking to get someone to release your records. Um, and again, even releasing music back then was a whole lot different to the way it is now. There was, no, there was no chance of doing it yourself, really. You were really reliant on the whole demos to a record company and a record company yeah. wanting to put that record out, you know? And um, nowadays, uh, you, you can do a lot yourself. And uh, I know lots of musicians who do everything in a home studio that costs a couple of, you know, few thousands euros and they're able to release a really good record on it. But back then, that wasn't the case. Yeah, I tend not to ask these things because it feels kind of private, but it, do you have any relationship with the guys anymore? Do you, I mean, do, are you pals with Fergal or Miles? Are you guys still okay? Yeah, Miles, def, me and Miles, you know, we were cousins and we grew up together, hung out together like as kids. And yeah, I'm still in touch with Miles regularly. And I was only in touch with Fergal this week for the first time in maybe 10 years. And, and Colm, the drummer, I was in touch with him as well. So we're just talking about these reissues that are coming out, the, the, the Heartworm reissue. And so I just made contact with him and it was, it was nice to hear from him. We just, a couple of texts back and forth. And we're going, we'd probably meet up you know, at some stage when this pandemic is over. And yeah, yeah, I've no, there's no animosity now at all. Like, you know, there really isn't. And, and part of that's, as you get older, you realize there's no point in holding on to any of these kind of petty, it's pointless. It, it does no good. It was, I had so much more good times with the guys than bad times. So I focus on those now, you know, the, the 12, 13 years we had together, we did some amazing things together. And, they're the things I look back on as I get older, not the, the negative stuff that happened near the end. And the negative stuff usually is grounded in youth and ego anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. I think with us, you know, losing the deal, deal with uh, Columbia after Heartworm knocked, I suppose it knocked the band's confidence to a degree. And we, we tried to do that toward album. We did that with our own money and um, you know recorded in a small studio but we knew even going into the studio that we wouldn't be around to play gigs after so we we literally released that record after we'd split up which was a strange experience and even going into the studio we we weren't in <laughs> we weren't in a good place in terms of the relationships in the bands there was days where we were like, it was like a revolving doors. We'd come in and Fergal would go out. And 
this wasn't good. But we got the album done under horrific circumstances and got it out there. But we weren't, we weren't, we weren't a band by the time it was released. You know, it was just, you know, it was, it was over. That's was kind of your, it's like your strange ways here we come because really the Smiths had basically with that record they were they were done, um, and you and it's like and you can hear it a little. I mean I love that record and I love the self titled Whipping Boy album too. Can you hear the tension in those songs still? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I I say it. I always say when I'm talking about that album and particular songs like So Much for Love, it's the sound of a band who are falling apart and. Even finishing with that song, We've Got No Place to Go, is, is like an admission that this is it. This is the full stop. You know, we've come to the end. And I knew that going in and we all knew it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely an album that sounds like a band who've kind of, I suppose, grown weary of, of each other and just, just of the whole experience of being in a band. It sounded like that. I still think there's some good music on that album, a lot of good music on it. Where we, we were, I think looking back on it now, we're probably as proud of that as we were at a Heartburn just to get it done. And I often think if that had been recorded for Columbia in the big studio with a producer, I think it would have been a big record. I think there's a lot of good stuff on it, you know. Um, but you know, as things, that's just the way things go. When you, I want to get back to you and the guitar because it, it, it's kind of interesting to me. You must still have guitars around your house, right? You have a couple of them, yeah, gathering dust, and you know, <laughs> I, I may take it. I may. My Miles has been bugging me for a while, and had been bugging me. Stop now to 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 get back and do something with him, and you know, maybe I will. Maybe I will. I mean, these reissues, the the album coming out again, it might help revive interest for me a bit. You know, I, like I, I'm amazed at the love for the band that's still there. Like 25 years on, you know, when you. It's just incredible how much interest there still is in the band for a band who are a complete commercial failure. And, you know, there's no easy way to say that, but that's that's what we were. We we did not succeed as a band in any shape or form. But to have people still talking about the record with the same love and fondness for it, it's it's humbling and it's just it makes it feel like it was worthwhile, all the hard stuff we went through. To know that we did something that stand, stands the test of time and is still out there, you know? Oh, I mean, I think it's become, I mean, the, the legend of the band, I think, has only grown because, I mean, I think those those three albums, obviously Heartworm gets a, a lot of the focus. Um, yeah. But it's I think it's bookended by two excellent albums. I mean, I think your discography is, is brief, but incredibly stellar. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and the, the songs have aged really, really well. Yeah, I think particularly Heartwarmer, and this is something that I hadn't listened to it in a long time, but I had to listen to it recently. And I just, I, it doesn't sound like an album that's, you know, dated in any way or sounds too specific to a particular time or era. I don't, I don't think it does anyhow. I could be, I could be wrong, but I suppose it, it didn't follow the Britpop fashion. And so many of those albums that were released in Britpop really aged badly because they just sound of that era and of that time. Whereas I think, whereas Heartworm writes about a lot of things from that time in Dublin, it doesn't sound musically like you could just plant it in any particular era, which I think is good. Yeah, it and gives it, it that kind of timeless quality. I feel the same way about bands like the Velvet Underground or Big Star, 
those those records to me they don't sound grounded in that time period even though they clearly are from that time period but that that's what makes something eternal i think is that it has that it can almost exist in any decade um yeah you know i, I mean like, you, yeah i'm particularly agree with about the velvet the velvet albums in particular for me they just sound timeless i never yeah. i never tired of listening to them no, it's like, it's just something, it just slips out of time and it's able to exist without being grounded in, oh, that's an 80s production technique or that set, that vocal sounds like it was really, none of that is happening on, on, on your records. And I think that really has helped um, make it sort of have this kind of eternal life. Yeah, um, and, and the producer Warren Livesey probably wasn't an obvious choice for us. We, we didn't actually come up with him. It was the record company suggested we talk to him and we talked to... Gil Norton, who had done the Pixies. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, he, he came over to Dublin and spoke to us. But the problem with Gil was he was so busy at the time and he couldn't fit us in to record. Um, we also spoke to Malcolm Bournes, who had done some work with Daniel Lanois. And we just got a good feeling off Warren. We knew, like, some of the stuff he'd done, he'd done the House of Love album, but he'd also done a Midnight Oil album, a Deacon Blue album, bands that we weren't, you know, we wouldn't have been. Um, particularly fans of but we got a good feeling off Warren we taught his ideas for the album in that he, he felt from listening to the demos the songs were there he didn't want to change the structures he just wanted to make everything sound bigger and more extreme so the the beautiful parts he wants to make them more beautiful and the heavy you know guitar heavy bits he wants to make them really jump out and we like that idea and that's one of the reasons we went for him you know you know who would have been interesting for you guys would have been Butch Vig. Yeah, he was mentioned. I remember the record because he was huge at the time, around 95, um, and he was mentioned. But I think he was just insanely busy at the time as well. We did have Lou Giordano come in and mix the album. Um, so we really liked the, the Sugar album, Copper Blue. Yeah. And Lou, Lou came in and you know helped out with the mixing. I think Warren really kind of still retained the reins on it, though. It would have been interesting to let Lou go off and just do it on his own, but Warren was looking over his shoulder a bit, so it was, Warren was very keen, I think, to make sure it was still an album that came, had his stamp on it, you know? Gil would have been interesting because Gil balances the sweetness and the menace of the Pixies sonically perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 to be honest, I, I like Gil's the work he did, but I still, I like Steve Albini's production on Surfer Rosa better. I, I just think there's that raw edge and I just think his drum sounds are incredible as well. So, um, you know, Gil is really good at producing guitar pop pop bands and Doolittle obviously is a huge album, but um, I don't know, Steve Albini would have been more my, my side of things, I think. It all comes Even back to Big Black. Yeah, yeah, it does actually. I, I love Big Black. I just, I loved how extreme the guitar sounded, and you know, just, I just loved that. But uh, he was never mentioned as a potential. I don't think that Sony would have went for him at the time, anyway. In the morning, I am a recluse, lost in memories, ideal situations, and convulsions. I'm never in. And built portholes for Bono so he could gaze out across the bay and sing about mountains, maybe. You are what you own in this land. You can't be king and it all depends on the view. 
kids never really took much interest they didn't even really realize i was in a band until recently <laughs> but I, uh, I've, a, I've a 21 year old who started has started making music himself but he, he's really into dance music and um kind of electronica so he's he's starting to try and make his make his own way there and look you know it's not my kind of music but i i think you just let the kids have to be let find their own way and you know, the fact that he's not really interested in the bands I like, it's just, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't bother me. It's like kids have to 
have to have their own thing and I never really tried to influence them in that regard. So they didn't know you were in a band until recently? That... Well, they just, it wasn't really something like, there's no real reminders around the house that I played and they were aware of it, but like they, they'd never really listened to the album or known much about it. Like they would have been too young um, at the time when Heartworn came out. So, you know, they're not, they're, their awareness of it isn't that great. And they don't, they're just not that bothered, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, I played in a band back in, it seems like, probably seems like to them I played in a band back in like the, the old days. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's not really relevant now because they don't really see me playing or doing anything in terms of music now. So just see it as something that happened in the past now. You, when you think about, uh, I interviewed a guy, this guitar player named Ian Goth, who does these beautiful finger-picking albums. He's really something else. Um, mm. But he was telling me he went through a period of his life where he couldn't really afford to be a musician. He needed to make money for his family. He couldn't do it. And so he broke all of his guitars. He smashed them. Oh. So he wouldn't be tempted <laughs> to play. Um, yeah. I mean, you seem like you hung it up and you seem like you were okay with that. But are there, and this, I'm asking this question selfishly because... I was into radio really young and I burned out by 23 and yeah. I quit for 20 years, but I thought about it every single fucking day. Mm. <laughs> I didn't yeah. have the heart to get in front of it because I didn't know what it would feel like or, and it felt really raw and weird to me. Um, so it took me, but I finally came back and it, and it felt better than ever. So I'm wondering like for you with, and this is just a really interesting moment in terms of putting it down. And do you think about it once a day? Do you never think about it? Do you, do you imagine what it would be like to pick that thing up again? Like, what is your curiosity around the cold turkey? Um, I, I think about the band every single day, what I did with the band. Um, I don't, uh, it wouldn't be fair to say I think about what it'd be like to start playing guitar again. But there's not a, like, the, the band was such a huge part of my life. Like, it, it's, it's there always in the background for me. And I think about it, and, you know, I just, it's it's something that was part. It defines who I was for a long period of my life. Yeah. So yeah, and I, and I do think about what would it be like to go out and play again or write songs again. Or sometimes, but I wouldn't say it's every day. But I do think about that. Um. Yeah. I I, I suppose, in a way, I probably feel I shouldn't have left it as long as I did. You know, you get to that point where you think I've left it so long now. There's no point in going back. It'd be like starting again. <laughs> You know, um, and there's that side of it as well. But like, I didn't miss it for a long time. It, it was too raw for the first two or three years. Just what had happened with the band, and I did have to like you say, like I had to go back and work. I had to find a job. I had a family, and I had to make a living. So that became my main focus because I knew I wasn't going to make a living from the band because <laughs> it was gone. So. You know that did become the main focus, and then you get a bit older, and other things take over in life. But it's it is something that's part of part of me, and I wouldn't rule out doing it again. Yeah, I wouldn't rule certainly taking up the guitar and seeing what happens. But I'd never do it like some people. You know, just want to play music. They play cover versions. They join a cover band just to be able to play the guitar. That doesn't interest me at all. I have to be making, creating something of my own for it to be interesting for me. 
I'm glad to hear you say that you that you wouldn't rule that out. And that's something that, you know, I mean, that initial moment where you pick, I mean, how long has it actually been since you've held a guitar? Do you even know? Um, I'd say maybe, I think I took, I, I took it out for a while, about seven or eight years ago. And just, just for a week or two, I was fiddling around and I just couldn't feel any magic from it. It was, it was like I said, I said, let's just, just see what happens if I take this out. And it just felt dead and it didn't. I remember when I picked up the guitar first, every time I picked it up, it felt like, you know, even though I was like fumbling around, it felt like I was creating magic. The, whole, the guitar looked like something that, from which magic happened. And it, I know that sounds weird, but it just, it felt like every note you played just sounded amazing. I picked it up eight years ago and it just sounded like a piece of wood with some strings and it just didn't have that magic for me. So. I won't obviously I, I might I'm not ruling out doing it again but it has, it has to feel like it's something that moves me or I want to do or it's not there's no point when you listen to music do you hear the guitar first as, as a guitar player does your ear immediately go to that place in the song or how do you no um here I, I you know when I listen to music it's the, the feeling of like music that's has some kind of an emotional attachment. It, just the feeling from it is, is what I look for. You know, obviously if, if I hear a band where the guitar is really stri strikes me as something, that, that, that's something that would pique my interest, you know, if there's a particularly good guitar sound, but it's not what I listen to forces. When I listen to music, I look for that kind of emotional connection where music like Elliot Smith, um, who's just, a, I was a huge fan of Elliot Smith, that kind of music just, or you just feel it. And that's what I look for from music force. It's not a particular instrument, but as a guitarist, obviously if I hear something that I think that guitarist is amazing, you know, it does, it, it does, I suppose, strike me more than someone who's just listening to music who hasn't played an instrument before. You obviously still have that, um, I suppose you still have that guitarist instinct in there when you listen to music to a degree, but, um, Music for me is more about the emotional connection, the overall sound. And as a guitarist, I don't think, I always wanted to contribute to the sound of Wiving Boy, the overall sound. I, I don't think I was a showy guitarist. There was not many guitar solos on there. It was, right. all, it was all about creating the kind of backdrop that made to the whole sound. It was just, that's all that I was interested in doing. You know, it, was, it wasn't being the virtuoso or being the, the guitarist where, you're there trying to, I suppose, push yourself forward. It was just, I wanted to make some, be part of the whipping boy sound. When you heard guys like John Squire or Johnny Marr, did that interest you at all? I mean, it's not the kind of playing you were doing, but did you think, it, what did that do for you? How did that land? I, like, I, I mean, Johnny Marr, I, I loved the Smiths growing up and I just think he was a phenomenal guitarist. Like I never, Technically, I'd never have got close to what he could do. John Squire, fantastic guitar as well. I suppose my idol guitar-wise would have been Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen. And I just thought he had a really unique style. Um, not, not particular, I wouldn't say technically he would have been as good a guitarist as Johnny Marr or John Squire. But for me, he just had that really unique sound. And he, he's, he's the one guitarist who I really looked up to back then when I was listening to music and starting to play guitar. I interviewed Peter Hook years ago and he told me that, Bernard, and, and by the way, when he told me this, and this is still happening, he's, he's not speaking to Bernard Sumner. 
Um, but he told me that Sumner, he thinks is a better guitar player than Johnny Marr. No, <laughs> I don't hear him. Uh, no, no. I, I mean, I think Bernard was, I, again, New Order, another band I loved, and I loved, he was a really good guitarist with Joy Division, but for me, I'd say Johnny, Johnny, Mar, Johnny Marr for me is the best guitarist there's been in the last 30 or 40 years, technically, even though Will Sargent would be my favourite player, but he, I just think he was fantastic. Yeah, I wondered if Peter Hook was hearing things that Sumner was doing that weren't recorded, that were never recorded or... Maybe, yeah, maybe. Um, look, there's no question he's a good guitarist, but yeah. I, I wouldn't put him in the same bracket as Johnny Marr. He's just ridiculously talented, I always saw. Yeah, did, did those Johnny Marr solo records does appeal to you? No, I, I, didn't really, I didn't really like them, to be honest. Um, just didn't didn't strike for me and even Marcy solo records I thought he did some good stuff early on but they just now I never really was a fan and I love the Smiths but I think there's a chemistry with a band you know like the Smiths and you can't underestimate the contribution of you know Rourke and Joyce in that band as well like you know really and truly and similar with the Bunnymen you know it's it's not all about Mac it's it's not all about Will Sargent those bands have a special chemistry. You take one element away and it's a different band. And that's why the solo stuff, like I always thought Morrissey's solo stuff, you could just hear like the musicians he was using. They were nowhere in the same league as the Smiths. They were just, they sounded like session guys playing with them, which they were. Yeah, and to me, I think Johnny Marr made Morrissey economize his, his lyrics in a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. With the solo stuff, he could kind of just do what he wanted and without without that Johnny Marr figure there, uh, forcing him to sort of adhere to these kinds of beautiful guitar lines, the magic for me was, was never there. I, I'm with you. I'm totally with yeah. you. Um, yeah, and I know Morrissey was really popular as a solo artist in the States, particularly. Probably, he's probably more popular than the Smiths were, from what I hear. But Huge. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it wasn't the same at all. And I think you're right. I think that partnership... Morrissey and Marr and how prolific they were when you think of how for such a short period of time they were around how many amazing records they made in terms of singles and it's just incredible you know it's, it's a once in a lifetime partnership that Morrissey and Marr partnership you don't get that that often no just completely on fire just one after the other I mean these were songs yeah. that just yeah I mean some bands, I, and I'm curious about, about Whipping Boy too in terms of the vaults, but some bands, they, they've got all those songs. Um, even in the early REM live stuff from like the mid eight, well, early 80s, they had songs that appeared on records five years later. They had the songs. Mm. Um, did you guys have the songs or were you, and, and are you finding a lot of sort of extra songs left over for the reissues? Um, or what, what are the Whipping Boy vaults like? So it's interesting um there's not that much in terms of unreleased music that we have there was certainly some demos around the time of the toured album um with unreleased songs but our early if you look back on our earlier album submarine and even Harform, Harform, we went into that studio with um 12 13 songs and 11 of them appeared on the album and the other two were like b-sides that's all we had going in so there's not there's not a whole lot for the reissue there will be some um there will be some b-sides and some demos on the uh, we'll have a kind of a bonus disc with the album of b-sides and demos 
um, maybe one or two live tracks, I think. So there won't be any there won't be any new songs on that. Um, but we're hoping to reissue Submarine and the Tord album. And we've uncovered a couple of songs that hadn't been released that we may put out with those. Yeah, because the third album, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it has like 11 songs. Uh, is it 11? You could be right. I'm trying to think, is it 10 or 11? Um, could be right. I think it's 11. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some bands carry these songs around with them. They come with their, their battle ready with like 30 songs. Um, no, we definitely, no, not a chance. We were... We weren't that prolific and, you know, it didn't come easy to us in terms of writing. We wrote together as a band and then sometimes it was hard work. You'd get a piece of music, but getting the lyrics would take a, wa a while. And, you know, Fargo, particularly at the end, I think towards the third album, his interest in the band and the relationships and the dynamic there was, was counterproductive in terms of writing for him. So, um. You know, we did. We went in again with that to, to that uh, for that session with maybe two or three more songs than appeared on that album. Actually, yeah, you, there's one really good song. There's one song we're all trying to find. Um, we remember it that we demoed it, and it didn't appear on the album. And we're all thinking now, why didn't we put that on the album? That was a really good song, and we know it's on tape somewhere, but we can't find it. So we're, we're looking for it at the moment. I hope you find it. The, I yeah. mean, what, what you said is really interesting, how you said your, your playing was perfect for Whipping Boy, but if that petrol emotion called or something happens called, that, those aren't the bands that you would have been in. That wouldn't have made sense, no. um, right? And I, I feel that way, even though Johnny Marr played with everybody, he could do anything. I feel like with the, like Morrissey with the Smiths, that's the band, you know, Marr with the Smiths. That, that's where that's the, the universe where they really belong. Um, have you... Is it, and I, I hate asking you this because I, I, I feel like you've probably been asked a million times, but I'm only asking because it's in context of what we're saying, which is, is it, is it possible to sort of put Whipping Boy back in a room together again and see if something magical could happen? Or does that just feel too, too risky of a thing to do emotionally? For me, for me, I just, I don't want to go back to doing that. I've, mm. I've kind of, I, I know there has been, there's been good, really good offers in the last two years for us to reform, like good tours where we would have, you know, we would have made some money to do what we did on the tours. Very decent offers, but I didn't want to do it. And I think in the last six months, there's been more, there's been more openness, certainly with the other three members of the band to doing that. And um, I've heard from, you know, independent sources the Fargo and Colin would have been interested in it and I know Miles probably would as well and I'm, I'm not keen on it but I'll never say I won't say I won't rule it out I'll, I'll never say never because I said that before and we had, <laughs> like I said that after we split the force on we'll never get back together and we did that that tour that um tour where we reformed but um look I know Miles his real thing would be if we were to do it it would have to be to do new material. He's no interest in doing, you know, a tour of just all the songs that we did before and have no vision for anything in the future. And that's that's something that he would be really adamant. He's no interest in that. And I, I, I can see why. I, I understand why he, he wouldn't. But so much around being in a band, around the compromises you have to make, that as you get older, it becomes much harder to do that. Yeah, it becomes harder, and I imagine in many ways other things get easier too. 
right? Because like you realize like, I, you know, guys in our 50s, you kind of realize like, okay, so the infinite nature of time doesn't feel as infinite anymore as it did when I was 23, right? Like you, the world right. kind of twists in a way where you go, oh, that's uncomfortable, but, but it does. And part of you goes, well, I can sort of shed the skin of, of stupidity and, and, you know, grudges or whatever, whatever it is that, that's making you whatever. So in many ways, it's easier to get older because you kind of realize like, let's to take some wild swings because there's not a, a thousand years left, you know? That's, that's definitely no i mean that's definitely one viewpoint and it's it's one i can see and you know i often think this stance that i seem to have will i regret it in a few years time that you know we didn't do it and you know it does a compelling argument for saying look this is we're only on this this kind of this merry ground for a short time you should try and enjoy it as much as you can did i enjoy the tour where we reformed I enjoyed aspects of it, but I did feel like we were kind of, you know, an older band doing, trying to recapture what we did when we were younger. And if I did it now, I'd feel even older. Yeah. <laughs> because I am older. And I, like I've gone to see bands like that um, that I used to really love and just come away feeling it just wasn't there, you know? It just wasn't there. Um, it feels like a band who are just going out and going through the motions, and I just don't want to do that. I know what you mean. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who was in a punk band years ago. And we were talking about a certain punk bands and he said, problem with those bands, I don't, I don't won't name them because I'm going to call anybody out, but he said this is that they stuck around too long. Um, yeah. you know, it it should have been like youthful exuberance and then get out. Um, when the Stone Roses did those new songs a couple of years ago, I thought they were shockingly bad um, yeah. And, yeah. and almost disturbingly so. Um, so mm -hmm. I get what you're saying. There's a huge risk there because, you know, I get it. I get what you mean. Um, but then again, if you pick it up and magic happens, you have to respond to the magic. So it can go either way. That's it. I, but I, you do have to also respect the legacy that you, you have as a band, the things that you did together as a band. And I'm always acutely aware of dragging that through the mud by trying to go out and like a boxer who's on their fifth comeback or whatever. It, it, just, just, it can turn into something really sad if it's done in the wrong way. And I'm, I'm just very conscious of that. Maybe I'm too conscious of it. Maybe I should be just loosen up and relax and just say, what the fuck, just get out and play, you know? It, who cares? People want to hear it, just do it. But I know in my heart like that, there's a part of me that just, I can imagine social media and you know how social media tears people apart now. I can just imagine some of the things that would go up. Like my, all the social media about Whitmore at the moment is pretty positive. <laughs> so, <laughs> You don't want to be, I, I, I just, there's just a, a side of me that thinks, no, nah, don't do that. It's, it's only going to, it's not going to, it's not going to make anything better. You've done, you, you did a great, you had your time as a band. You did some good things. It's time to move aside. There's other bands out there doing it now, you know? Um, any new bands excite you? Have you heard anybody? Because I, I got to tell you, I heard this band, Paul, uh, that has just literally like blown me away in a way I have not been blown away for a long time. They're okay. called Bad Nerves. Bad Nerves. Bad Nerves. I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest you check them out. Um, so I'm gonna take that down if that's okay because I'll, I'll forget. Please, um, please, Bad and, Nerves. And, stuff. and they, yeah. they, remind, they have all the fire. If you can imagine the Buzzcocks meets the Misfits. That sounds good, yeah. With, with an even lippier uh, Liam Gallagher uh, uh, on vocals. Where are they from? 
they're they're a UK band and they are and the singer is a great singer and they're you'll see it's this fuzzed out uh, two minute songs it's sort of like throw a little Ramones in there but like the hooks are they're just unstoppable they're an unstoppable band knocking me out um, what about you anything that's that's gotten you excited or you feel that you hear the magic to be honest there's not that many bands that are really I, I think music since Nirvana there hasn't been that many bands that have really excited me and I, I Again, other people say, yeah, there's loads of good music out there. And there is loads of good music, but there's no band who've really shaken it up since Nirvana where, you know, they came along and I just felt they were like this explosion. There's, there's been nothing like that for me. And I, I listen to a lot of stuff. I listen, I listen to a lot of, um, believe it or not, ambient classical music now, like um, Max Richter, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. since, the pande- since the pandemic started, I'm kind of working from home. That music, I've almost taken refuge in. I listen to that like while I'm working, and it's it's just I find it just some way calming and peace, almost peaceful sitting there to work listening to that. I did. I really like that band Mets when they came out the first couple of records. Yeah, Canadian bands. I thought they were pretty exciting. Um, went to see them in Dublin. I thought they were really good. Um, just just there's not that many bands I could really like the Fontaines DC from Dublin they're pretty good I think you know I think there was a lot of hype about them when they came out and I think that album is really good that debut album but um probably a little bit overhyped in Ireland when we get a really good band we always you know our instinct is we found like this this band is the best thing ever yeah. And they are a really, they are a really good band, and they, I think they could develop into something really amazing in two or three albums. But it's will they still sticking around is the hard, hard part. You know, they're going through the pressures that every band does now. I would imagine. Yeah, and I think Liberty Bell was for such a high point, and I, nothing has come close for me. Uh, yeah, I love that song as well. That's probably my favorite song of yeah. theirs. I just thought it was fantastic. My favorite recent Irish band was The Thrills, and they put out three perfect albums and then just literally vanished. And I've, I'm going to get Connor Deasy on this podcast, but I think those albums are absolutely perfect. I don't know what happened to those guys. I, I love, I love their music as well. They were huge fans of Whipping Boy, believe it or not. I can um, see that. Like, uh, we didn't know this, but when they were like, they were on in the English charts, they were doing really well. They were name checking us in all, all their interviews, um, which we felt like the music doesn't sound in any way, you know, like Whipping Boy influenced it, but they, they used to go to all the gigs in Dublin. And when we did that ref, that tour where we reformed, um, their guitarist came and played one of the songs for us on stage. Um, he, he, was, he was a huge fan of the band. Fergal was good friends with them. And he asked, could he do it? So we, we had them on stage, but I thought their three albums were fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. And their last one, the very last one they did, I thought was their best. Yeah. I mean, teenager. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And again, they suffered from a similar thing, like where they had so much on that first album, where they were like the flavor of the month. And whatever happened when the second album came out, it just didn't catch the way the first one did. And then the record company seemed to lose interest in them. That was yeah. my take. And by the time Teenager came out. In Ireland, even they were like they'd gone from heroes to zero like overnight. They were they were incredibly popular for that first album, and then it just all died down. That was a pity. 
Another band I really loved was Ghost of American Air Man. They put those two records out in the States. I, I loved that band. I don't know if you knew them. I didn't really know. No, I don't know yeah. them at all. I, I know the name, but um, and I, lo- I suppose from around that time, that Petrol Emotion, I went to see Echo and the Bunnymen, probably my second gig ever, and that Petrol Emotion were supporting them. I think it was maybe their fifth or sixth gig as a band. I just remember being blown away by them as well. I thought they were incredible. They were like, great. Yeah, they were Manic great. Pop. Manic Pop Trail is just a great album. Oh, it's, it's a perfect record. Um, any yeah. interest in seeing the Shane McGowan documentary or is that too painful to watch? No, I, I would be interested in seeing. I mean, Shane's an incredible songwriter. Um, he's, been, he's, been, he's been on some Irish TV shows in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, it was kind of sad to watch him. He's, he's, he's still hanging on in there, but, you know, I don't know. It, it just felt wrong. It almost felt voyeuristic watching him because yeah. he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't really wasn't coherent and he was just he just looked like a sick man and for someone who'd who's written so many great songs and like incredible songs such a talented songwriter i don't know if it's a legacy of i suppose the rock and roll years where there's a lot of drinking drugs there but um it seems like it's taking its toll on him but I, i'd be interested in that documentary definitely because yeah great band it looks powerful. Um, did you interact with Lou Reed at all? Was there any on that tour? Did you have any Lou Reed moments? You know, we've supported a lot of bands, Rage Against the Machines, Smashing Pumpkins, Nick Cave, um, lots of English bands. Very often as the support bands, they barely say hello to you. The first night we pay- played with Lou Reed in London on the tour, when we came off stage, he was outside our dressing room with the rest of the band to introduce himself and the band to us. And just to say, just to say to us, we're going to be with you. You're going to be with us for five weeks. We want you to have a good time. And this is the band. And I just thought it was a really nice touch. And yeah, we, 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 we did have some interactions with him. He, like we were on this French TV show and Lou was playing on it and Elvis Costello was playing on it. And he said some really nice things in his interview about the band and, we would meet him occasionally. Like he wasn't someone who hung out for drinks, but we played pool with him one night at one of the early shows in a, a in a local bar. Played some games of pool, and he was really nice to us. He was a gentleman to us. There was no, like we'd heard of this fearsome reputation and yeah. how he, you know, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and he was just someone. But for, to us, he treated us better than any headline act ever had done. That's the way we saw it, anyhow. I love hearing that because sometimes, you know, I've had moments where, um, you know, you get afraid, you're talking to people that you really admire or you're hanging out with people you admire and you think, God, if you're, if you're not nice to me, I'm going to have a real dilemma on my hands of how to handle your art. <laughs> it's going to really become yeah. tricky. You know, it's yeah. like. Yeah. And I can see what, you know, people, the people treat you, if they're an asshole to you, you're obviously going to be less receptive to what they're doing, no yeah. matter how good their art or the music is, you know, but no. I've I've actually read some, I read a biography of Lou Reed subsequently where, you know, literally nobody had a good word to say about him. Even some of his closest friends said he was an asshole back then. But by the time we played with him in, back then in 96, you know, maybe he was a different person, but he was just really cool with us. No, no problems at all and treated us so well. Oh, I love hearing that. Uh, and I wasn't trying to sort of, you know, pressure you to put the guitar back in your hands again but i'm just really kind of curious yeah, no. about 
the relationship between how this stuff works and um, I'm fascinated by the creative process and, and I'm, this show really is not about looking back. It's about looking forward. And, and I, and I do in my own life, I've tried to, and this is probably like self-preservation, Paul, but like I'm trying to smash the rear view mirror and not be, not fetishize the past and not walk through a museum of my life. And just, I want to constantly be doing new things. And so, you know, I try to really talk about moving forward. And so it's interesting to hear about your relationship with your instrument or, or you're not seeing each other right now, but it's, it's interesting to me to talk about that. I'm glad that you're, that you're willing to, to talk about it. And it's something that I'm rarely asked about, believe it or not. Um, you know, and in any of the interviews, they usually focus on hardcore, they usually focus about the band. But yeah, very few people take that, look at that angle, you know, in terms of the relationship with something that was such a huge part of your life. The guitar, like, you know, from the time I was 17 or 18, it was all I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden that stopped being the case. So it is an angle I, that's interesting, I can see. I can see why that would be interesting. And even talking about it now, I do, I suppose I realize that maybe it's something I should look at. Maybe I should, you know, as you say, life is short. So who knows? You may, you may have uh, triggered something there, Alex. I Listen, I, I would be, I would be happy if that was the case. And uh, if you pick it up again, I'd be more than happy to listen, man. Thank you. Thanks a million. Thank you. I appreciate your time. This is a blast. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, it was a, a real pleasure. Three, Paul Page of Whipping Boy. Very nice guy. Very sincere. Very, uh, very cool guy. I like him. I hope he picks up the guitar, but uh, I'll understand if he doesn't. It all gets back to I gave you enough, doesn't it? That's the theme of this show. Well, if you can't get enough of Whipping Boy, I can understand that. Uh, they're an unbelievable band, and you can get the reissues of their albums through Needle Mythology. So here are two ways to stay informed. Uh, follow Whipping Boy on Twitter, at Whipping Boy Band, and uh, follow Needle Mythology Records, at Needle Mythology. And uh, you can see uh, what's going on with those reissues. They're going to be beautiful, like uh, museum pieces. You're going to want them. Trust me. Uh, AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to see all the things I do. None of those would be suitable museum pieces at all, but stop by and say hello. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Dot com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a nice comment, give us a rating. The order in which you do these things does not concern us, only that you do them. <laughs> okay? We would appreciate it. We really would. Thank you for taking the time to express your love of the program. Uh, if you have anything else to express, eh, let's just stick with the love, okay? All right. Uh, Bombshell Radio can be found on bombshellradio.com. Stop by and see what makes us tick. And I think that's all the businessy stuff that we have. Let's close the show with a longer listen to When We Were Young by Whipping Boy. Enjoy it. 
and I'll see you next time. Thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio. When we were young, nobody died, and nobody got older. The toughest kid in the street could always be bought over. The first time that you loved, get all your life to live. At least that's what you said. Beauty Queens What might happen